Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple II. Whether you're a longtime user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Well, welcome to Open Apple Podcast number three. How are you today, Ken? Fine. How are you, Mike? I'm doing well, thank you. Excellent. What have you been up to since our last show with Ivan a month ago? Um, well, not a whole lot. What about you? Uh, not much. No, actually, I've been up to a lot. <laughs> yeah, I saw your tweet that said you were actually up to quite a bit. Yeah, just March is a busy month with the synchronicity of getting a new issue of JuiceGS out and Kansas Fest, which we'll be talking about later in the show. I'm glad to have it all over it. I've spent several of the last few days just playing video games, but I do want to mention a thanks before I forget to the other podcasts in our retro computing community who have given us shout outs, those being the Retro Computing Roundtable and the Retro Maccast. Thank you, guys. Thank you. And tweets from Earl Evans over at RetroBits. Nice. Yeah, you know, it's funny that I was talking to somebody who hasn't listened to this show yet. What? I know. <laughs> Shocking. It is. But nonetheless, he hasn't gotten on the bandwagon yet. I'm sure he will. Oh, jeez. And he was asking me, where does the name Open Apple come from? Because he didn't hear our first episode where we talked about that. And he asked me one of two options. Is it a reference to the Resource Central newsletter? Or is it the fact that you have a different guest on the show every month and it's like an open mic, so it's an open apple? Well, I hadn't thought about that second one, but I actually kind of like that. Yeah, and it works out really well, especially since we do have another guest in the studio this month. We have Peter Neubauer from the Kansas Fest Planning Committee. Hi, Peter. Thank you, Ken. Hello, Peter. Hello, Mike. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? Doing very well. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Great. So, Peter, how did you get into the Apple II? I was introduced to the Apple II in third grade. I was part of a math program that incorporated a lab of Apple IIEs into the curriculum. That was my first introduction to the Apple II, also my first introduction to personal computers, and it's, well, what started my hobby and later career that brings me here today. Were you an Apple II user consistently from third grade on? Because I'd never met you until you came to KFest 2009. So what were you doing in the intervening years? A few years after third grade, my parents got an Apple II C Plus in the house. I spent a a lot of time with that computer, probably much more time than was, was healthy for me. By the time I started high school, I had packed away the Apple II, which sat in the closet for a number of years, and I, I moved over to PCs, Windows, at that time MS-DOS. I believe it was about three years ago I, I pulled my Apple IIc Plus out of the box. I was motivated by Kansas Fest. I recently moved to Oklahoma. Now, Kansas Fest was a relatively short drive away, and I was having a hard time coming up with a reason not to at least go once. I played with the Apple IIc Plus for probably about six months before Kansas Fest, and about a year, year and a half ago, I started expanding my collection of Apple IIs, now have a 2GS as well. So I was either dormant with the Apple II for a number of years or probably too young for the Apple II community to remember me. Well, it's really cool to have you at Kansas Fest, and we've been having more and more newcomers come to the event every year. And what I would consider younger people as well, people like you and me and Eric Rucker and Melissa Barron, and what's really cool is that people like them and you are coming back. You know, once you come to Kansas Fest, once you get hooked. And it's really great to see people like you not just uh, be flybys, which we also appreciate meeting, but stick around and actually start contributing to the community and getting even more out of it. When I went to my first Kansas Fest, I wasn't sure what to expect. I could hardly not go, given that it was just a couple of hour drive for me. When I first went to Kansas Fest, I wasn't sure what to expect. Given that it's the Apple II and the Apple II hasn't been in production for 20 years, I expected most attendees to be at least 20 years older than me. But that wasn't the case. I, I was very surprised to see that a lot of people coming from a lot of different experiences with the Apple II show up at Kansas Fest. There are people I've met who just discovered the Apple II the previous year. There are other people like myself who, who use it as a kid in elementary school, and there are still other people who were 
developers, programmers, authors, writers during the heyday of the Apple II. It's it's very exciting and it's it's unique to have all those perspectives together in the same room. And one of the things I love about the Apple II community is that it's not just people who are new to the community who are sticking around, but it's people who have been here for 30 years who are still sticking around. You know, people like Alan Floater and Don Worth who are still communicating with today's Apple II users. And it creates this wonderful sense of community that spans the decades and creates this sense of continuity of passing on the information while the people who created it are still part of the community. I think Jason Scott was saying it's it's almost like having a a car show where the you know Henry Ford shows up or whoever invented the engine that you're a fan of he's like oh yeah you like that I I did that I'm glad you like it I think that the Apple II is in is in a unique spot on one hand it's so much easier today than it was 20 or 30 years ago to get information resources hardware to meet people but on the other hand, the community of people and the amount of new information that's being produced is much smaller. If, if there's something that you want to learn how to do on the Apple II today, there's 30 years of magazine articles to thumb through to try to find the information you want. Whereas 20 years ago, you might open the magazine that shows up in your mailbox and tells you what you want to know. So it's much more... I think the Apple II community today is much more pull. You have to go out and seek the information. That's one of the changes that information technology has brought to culture in general. There's just so much data out there to sift through. And in a way, it's great to have all this information about the Apple II, but I also understand that um, me being a content producer in this community, it's challenging to ensure that stuff that I'm producing has not been done before. Because I don't want to retread old ground. I want to find something new and original that I can contribute. And so you're right. Having that 30-year history does make it challenging, but in a good way. Absolutely. I think it's a different approach when today you, you can go and download your reference manual for every Apple II computer ever created. Whereas 20 or 30 years ago, you went to your local library and whatever book they had is what you may do with. It's actually a very Apple II-centric weekend, at least for me. I had dinner last night with Thomas Compter, who is another Kansas Fest alumnus. Have you ever met him, Mike? I have not, no, but I've heard the name. Oh, I'm sorry that you haven't crossed paths with him. He's a cool guy. He's very much a card game, board game player, tactical role-playing game kind of guy. And I think there's a game called Starfleet Battles that he wrote an Apple II utility for to help you keep track of Federation starships as they're moving through space as you're playing this game. No, I'm not familiar with that game. And, of course, I did see Andy Malloy again this past month. He was on our first episode. He and I went to the Penny Arcade Expo East, which is a three-day video game convention held in Boston. This was the second annual event. We thought it was primarily video games, but this year they moved to a larger venue than last year, and they had this huge hall dedicated just to board games and card games. And you could walk through there at any hour of the day, 2 p.m., 2 a.m., and people would be playing games, inviting you to play games. They had an entire library of board games that you could borrow just to play with complete strangers. I had nobody to play with, so I sent a tweet saying, does anybody want to play this game with me? And within a minute, somebody walked up to me and said, hey, I heard you're looking for players. Wow, that's pretty neat. Yeah, it was a great event, and it was great to spend it with Andy. I was really glad he was able to make it. Do you cross paths with many Apple II users in your neck of the woods, Mike? Um, I don't. Um, there's another Apple II user, uh, Paul Zaleski. He lives in the Steamboat Springs, which is a few hours from me, but I, I rarely see him. So, What about you, Peter? Are there any Apple II users in Oklahoma? I'm aware of one Apple II user in Oklahoma, uh, Little John of 8-Bit Systems, and I haven't had the chance to talk to him recently, but I, I visited his rather large Apple II stash several times. It's He's an impressive collection. and He has a number of Apple II products on the market right now that I, I recommend. They're, they're very nicely done. Yeah, he comes to K-Fest every year in that ginormous bus of his, and it's usually filled to the brim with Apple II stuff. Is that all the stuff that he keeps at home? Did you see all that stuff when you went to visit him? I believe most of the things on the bus actually came from Sean's collection. That's and right. then and then James has his own collection. He has a separate building dedicated to storing Apple equipment. Oh, my goodness. 
I had no idea. I helped uh, last year. I helped him move books from inside his house to bookshelves outside in his well, I'll call it Apple II warehouse. <laughs> hmm. And sometimes that bus is filled to the brim with Apple II users going to Denny's at three in the morning. Yeah, wasn't there a story behind that? They thought you were from the local jail or something. I wasn't on that one, but uh, I heard that that was true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime a crowd of Apple II users goes out in Kansas City around 2 a.m., there seems to be some sort of legal implication. Yeah, there's always a great story the next morning. You know, I'm sorry to have to miss out on that experience, but on the other hand, one of these days, I just can't help but feel it's going to go wrong, and I'm going to be glad I'm far away. <laughs> yeah. Get what's new and exciting in retro computing with two news. So the big news right now, as it is this time of year every year, is the opening of Kansas Fest, the annual Apple II Expo that's held at Rockhurst University and Kansas City, Missouri. This year's event is July 19th to the 24th. I understand the keynote speaker is Bob Bishop, who we've actually mentioned several times on this show before. And Mike, you interviewed him for GS a couple of years ago. Yes, I did. It was a it was a fascinating interview. I mean, he's a great storyteller. You just you know sort of point him in the right direction, and and he comes up with all these great stories about the uh, the early days at uh, Apple Computer uh, when he established the R and D uh, lab with Woz, and stories about him programming the the games and sending the tapes up to Apple, and work would just stop for the day while they were playing his games. So I'm looking forward to hearing more of that in July. Waz actually was invited to the Facebook event for Kansas Fest, and he wrote on the event's wall saying he'd love to come, but he has a speaking engagement in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, July 19th. Well, he's a big celebrity now, so it doesn't surprise me. Well, he still hopes that he can make it and hang out with his old friend Bob. I, if he does come, I hope that he doesn't overshadow our keynote speaker. No, I think that'd be a, a great session, just listening to those two chat for a while. Yeah, and getting a picture of them reunited after all these years. Absolutely. I wonder when the last time they saw each other was. I don't know. As I recall, Bob was uh, let go on, on Black Wednesday by Mike Scott. He said, uh, I think he said he hadn't been back to Apple since that day. And Peter, you're actually the first guest on Open Apple who has not been a Juice GS staff member, but you are on the Kansas Fest Planning Committee. Yes, I've been part of the Kansas Fest Planning Committee for going into my second year right now. I did the flyer, which is in color right now on the back of the current Juice GS issue. I also did the logo that is on the website and on the t-shirt that are for Kansas Fest. I saw the logo um, on the webpage. I'm really impressed this year. I like that a lot. Yeah, this is the first time we've actually brought logo design in-house in several years. We were outsourcing it to a good friend of mine who also designed the current look for our, the Kansas Fest website. And this year, we just wanted to try something a little bit uh, closer to the community. And Peter was inspired with this year's logo. It came out really nice. Yeah, I think it was a good choice. Thank you. I'm not particularly good at graphic design. My background is in computer software. But I hope I came up with something that's unique to the Apple II and, and draws together some things that we wouldn't have in a logo when someone outside the Apple II community is designing it. Are we all registered for Kansas Fest, the three of us already? I am not yet. Well, what's the holdup? Well, you know, I just haven't decided whether I'm going to come. <laughs> You're lying. Of course I am. You actually submitted a session to present already, didn't you? I do, yep. Um, I'm going to continue on the the, the session uh, that I did last year where we took a look sort of at, at a basic overview of the Apple III, uh, Apple's business computer, and what, kind of why that didn't take off. And this year we're going to get a little bit more technical. Will we have a working Apple III at Kansas Fest to see? We absolutely will, yep. Look forward to that. Yeah. I don't think I've ever actually seen an Apple III in-person boot. Well, and that was that was kind of the, the comments that I got after the session last year where everybody said, uh, you know, we, we'd hope that we could see it working. So you will get to see a working Apple III. In addition to the vendor fair that we have every Saturday, I think this year they're also expanding it into an exhibit hall, which is more typical of events like the VCF, where usually instead of just having the vendors show up and sell stuff, everybody can grab a table or a booth and show off their latest hardware, the software, anything new or unusual or rare, or even just their own HackFest entries. Instead of just showing it off, people can actually come up and play with it. So I hope that people actually take advantage of that. I would think so. Yeah, there, there seemed to be some interest in that on the KFest list. 
I think that KFES is very driven by the people who attend it. All the sessions are given, presented, selected by the attendees, and I think that the the exhibit hall is is another way for people to participate, show what they've been doing. I think that the exhibit hall is much less formal than a presentation. It doesn't require as much preparation, and it's something you can decide on the spur of the moment. You can spend the entire week at Kansas Fest trying to fine-tune your project, and if it doesn't work, nobody knows, but if it works, you can show it off as an exhibit. And Peter, are you planning on either exhibiting or giving a presentation this year? I will definitely give a presentation. I don't know what the topic might be yet, and I don't know about an exhibit. I have a couple of ideas. I don't know I don't know what I'll think of them in a couple of months anymore. Because your session last year on Microsoft was pretty well received, and of course that's followed up most recently in GSGS. Yeah, I really enjoyed that session. It was a lot of fun to prepare, a lot of fun to research, and I, I enjoyed giving the presentation. I'm glad it was well received. I am giving at least one Kansas Fest session this year, and I would like to do a panel like we did last year, which you were on, Mike, and I thought that went over pretty well. I remember, I think Kirk Mitchell said, the intelligence of the discussion caused the room to tilt a bit. <laughs> okay. And I think that was a compliment, and it's one that I'd like to get again by doing another panel, but I don't know what the subject might be, so I'm going to have to cogitate on that. Well, good luck with that. In addition to KFest, I think I'm going to the VCF this year. Ivan invited me on the last episode, but after that, he realized he had a conflict. Uh, so I'm probably still going to go, just unfortunately, I won't be seeing him. But I'm going to be setting up a vendor booth for JuiceGS and hopefully selling some stuff. I have seen the design now for the VCF t-shirt, and I would really, really like you to pick me up one. Consider it done. Thank you. Welcome. Can you, since I'm going to the event, can you let me know what the shirt looks like? Are you familiar with Kevin Smith's Jay and Silent Bob characters? Of course. Uh, it's sort of a play on that. You've got the Jay and Silent Bob, but they're wearing the 6502 t-shirt and a couple of other things. The t-shirt is called Steve and Silent Waz. Very nice. Yeah. Sounds like copyright infringement. It might be, yeah. <laughs> All the more reason to want it. Kind of like that Steve Jobs action figure that got pulled. <laughs> I can't believe they pulled that. But did you hear how they got around it after that? <laughs> yeah, that, that got pulled too. Oh, they got rid of the the the, the Steve the, the Steve Jobs ninja doll. Yeah, they just took the Steve Jobs action figure and they put like a black sheath over it and called it a ninja. And if you happen to take off the clothes, oh, it's Steve Jobs underneath. No, I haven't seen that. That's that's clever. I wonder what uh, wonder what they're how they did that legally. I mean, Steve Jobs is a public figure. You can't can't you do that sort of thing with them? It may be that they did it, and then when somebody complained, they pulled it off the market. That's possible. Yeah. Depending on the size of the company, they might have more legal weight to throw around than others. That's true, yeah. You don't want to get into a protracted legal battle with Apple. I remember once I was investigating how to make those cardboard stand-ups of celebrities, and I called some companies, and they said, who are we making this of? And I said, it's a local celebrity. And they said, oh, we, we don't do celebrities. And I said, no, 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 it's a local celebrity. It's like the editor of the local paper. And they said, oh, yeah, that's fine. So so apparently there is some distinction there. Interesting. Also in the news is something that I can't quite talk about without it being a blatant plug, so I'll pass it over to Peter for this topic. Just this last week, JuiceGS shipped the next and beautiful full-color issue. I actually took mine with me to the airport and read it while sitting in Detroit. Now, is, is the whole thing in color? The front and back cover are in full color. The front cover contains several drawings about the piece on interactive fiction from Wade Clark, and the back cover contains the full color Kansas Fest flyer, which is a, a piece that I, a flyer that I actually did. The interior of the issue is black and white. There are features on a new series that Martin Hayes writing about getting started with the Apple II. There is the cover feature on interactive fiction, emphasizing the lead light adventure by Wade Clark. There is the first ever interview with Ellen Flater. And we also have the fifth and final part of the ongoing series about Apple II file transfer methods. I actually have a funny story about the text adventure. I conducted interviews with four people for this article. And I thought I was done. I had all my data. I was going to sit down to read it. 
And then one of those four people emailed me and said, Ken, I just thought of somebody else that you should talk to. I've introduced you already. Here's his contact information. I said, oh, great. But I was not prepared to do that interview. So I did some research online and realized that the book I really needed to go to to prepare for that interview was Twisty Little Passages by Nick Montfort. And I remember Andy Malloy had reviewed that for Juice GS a couple years ago, and he gave me back the copy when he was done with it. It was somewhere in my house. So I'm like, okay, I'll put that off. And then the next day I was cleaning my house, just randomly came across the book. I'm like, oh, here's the book I was looking for. So I read the chapter that was relevant. I went to my computer to write out the interview questions for this gentleman. I had the book in one hand. I was typing on the other. And out of the blue, I got an email from Brian Weiser who says, Ken, I just got back from the Computer History Museum in Mountain View, California, and they had a wonderful display on interactive fiction. I took a bunch of pictures that I thought you might like to see. Here they are. And he had no idea I was doing any of this work on this article. He had no idea it was being published. And I wrote to him, I said, your timing couldn't be better. I'd love to run these in JuiceGS. He said, that'd be great. And it was just wonderful how all three of those things worked out without almost any effort on my part. One interviewer introduced me to the other. I found the Twisty Little Passages book. Brian Weiser submitted the photos. It was almost like it was meant to be. Unfortunately, one thing that was not meant to be is 300 Baud Magazine, which launched last year. It was also a print-only publication about retro computing, but not any one platform in particular. It ran for three issues. The third one is in the process of being printed right now. And unfortunately, they've decided that the third issue will be the last. Uh, it was a really neat little magazine. It was 11.5 by 8.5 folded in half, so a small booklet sized. Unlike Juice GS, it was completely in color, every page inside and out. It was a really neat variety of articles that would appeal to any sort of retro computing enthusiast. And I'm really sorry to see it go. On the bright side, the first two issues were printed in very limited quantities. And now that, that they've completed their run, they've made all three issues available online for free as PDFs. Yeah, I was very disappointed to, to see that that happen because I, I was introduced to that magazine. Um, you had mentioned it actually last year at Kansas Fest in a session, and I went and, and bought the second issue because the first one was sold out, and I was really looking forward to seeing more from them. I haven't, unfortunately, read 300 Baud Magazine. I waited too long, and both the first and second issues were sold out. Well, now you can get them. Yes. On one hand, I'm glad that I can finally read them. On the other hand, it's, it's sad to see them go. Did they... Did they give any reason why they were discontinuing publication? Well, I think their webpage, they, they said that it took them over a year to get the third one done. And I think the message was basically that it, it turned out to be a lot more effort than they thought it would be. And it is a lot of work to put out a magazine. It requires a lot of help from a lot of volunteers. And they had a lot of contributors. There were several different bylines in their magazine, but it's possible that they didn't have much help beyond the contributions. Maybe the editing and the publishing just came down to Dale Goodfellow and Simon Williams, and that's a lot of work for two people by themselves to take on. So maybe they'll bring it back with a larger staff, or maybe somebody else will take up the name. I haven't heard anything about either of those things happening, but it was nice for a little while to know that JuiceGS wasn't alone out there. They will be missed. Now for some hardware news, um, and I actually received mine just yesterday. Uh, Mike Willigal is now shipping the, the brain board, and I've not had a chance to, to plug it in yet to, uh, to play with it, so I'm not really sure what I'm about to get myself into. But uh, for those that are not familiar, the brain board is basically an Apple One card for your Apple II. Um, you plug it in, and it's got a, it's got a ROM that you can load, and, and it's, you'll be, it's like operating an Apple One. I think that the brain board is potentially more than an Apple One inside of your Apple II. Right. It's it's actually a language card. I think that feature by itself could be interesting. I think that Mike describes in his webpage how you might be able to have integer basic ROMs and AppleSoft basic ROMs simultaneously in the computer and then switch between them without even needing to power it down or open the computer. Right, yeah, it, it does have a, the switch on it. Can all the all the ROMs are socketed, so you can put in whatever you want. It does ship with his. Uh, he calls it the the Waz, pack, which is the Apple One language ROM, I guess you'd call that. And then you can put it, put whatever else you want on there. And I think the Apple One, I'll call it emulation, even though it's really not. I think the Apple One recreation inside your Apple Two is the most interesting and most useful feature for most users, but. I also think the brain board is pretty cool because it's more than just that. Absolutely. 
And Mike will actually be selling these, I think, at the Vintage Computer Festival, and I hope that he'll find a way to have them available at Kansas Fest this year as well, even if he himself isn't there. Uh, another new thing that just came out that I'm really enthusiastic about is Profuse, which is the ProDOS file system for Mac and Linux, which Kelvin Sherlock came out with a couple years ago. He has just added some really neat features to it. Historically, to install this program, you have to have a little bit of familiarity with Unix and the command line in Mac or Linux and know which folder to put it in. And then to use it, you have to issue it from the command line. Kelvin has come up with an installer, which basically for the Mac puts the program right where it needs to be. And then an image mounting program where you just run image mounter and you drag a disk image on and it makes a best guess at what format it is and it mounts it right on your desktop. So you don't need to use the command line to mount the disk, to access it, anything. It's, it's really elegant and it makes it so much easier to use. Have either of you ever used Profuse? Uh, no, but I don't have a Mac. I, I have not used Profuse. I have used some of Kelvin's other software products. He has He's done quite a few things and has quite a few examples of his other work on his website. But I think that Profuse is probably one of the more exciting things that he's done, at least for me. Profuse is read-only, but he said he's working on write functionality as well. And I think actually this installer application that he came up with also installs the ability to read Pascal disks for the Apple II. So it's not just ProDOS anymore. Well, that's neat. I guess I'll have to sneak this onto my wife's MacBook Pro when she's not looking. She'll never know the difference. That's right. A2 Retro Systems has announced that they have more Ethernet cards available. On the 19th of March, they had 30 cards. They're down to 19 cards as of the 31st of March. So if you want one, you better hurry up and get one. What exactly is that, and how much is it? It's an it's an Ethernet card for your Apple II. Yeah, the the price is eighty nine dollars per card and twelve dollars shipping. And I think that the Ethernet card is worth every penny. I actually have two Ethernet cards, but I only have one Apple II with slots. I like the first one so much, I just had to have a a second for a backup. I use the Ethernet card frequently for running ADT Pro. I find that ADT Pro over an Ethernet card is a lot faster for transferring disk images than than a serial cable. And beyond that, the Ethernet card has options for FTP and other programs on 8-bit Apple IIs. And on the 16-bit side, the 2GS, there's FTP clients, web browsers. Oh, sounds like you've gotten your money's worth. Definitely. Is there anything you don't like about it? No, I, I have no complaints about the card. I think the card works exactly as advertised. It sped up file transfers compared to serial cable a lot more than I anticipated. And the first time I plugged my Ethernet in and ran ADT Pro, I, I was amazed at how much visibly faster it was. And that was even before I, I tried out other software like Marinetti or, or Safe 2 with the Ethernet. I think that there's still a lot of opportunities to develop software with the Ethernet. I think that there's a lot of untapped potential with the Ethernet card. There's very little 8-bit software that supports the Ethernet. I'm aware of ADT Pro and Contiki. On the 16-bit side, there's a lot more software, but the Ethernet card doesn't integrate with GSOS like the Apple Talk networking that's built in there does. So some of your file sharing options are limited. It would be incredible if we were somehow able to do Apple Talk over the Ethernet card. Now I realize there's a lot of technical barriers to that. I really agree with Peter here. Um, when I got my Ethernet card and put it into the 2GS, basically that sort of eliminated the need for me uh, to use the... Um, uh, three and a half inch drive anymore. Uh, I can just transfer all my files and, and disk images and things like that right through the, the local area network with that card. Yeah, I have a new Ethernet card that I bought off Sean Fahey last summer, and I've used it a little bit, but definitely not to its potential. I have my Apple IIgs set up here at work, and I need to try harder to get it working on this network because I really want to be able to submit help desk tickets here at Computer World next time I encounter a network issue from my Apple II. Nice. I'm sure that the name Don Lancaster is familiar to Apple II users. Um, he wrote a number of Apple II-related books, um, and he recently announced on CompSys Apple II that the Apple Assembly Cookbook, he's released that as a, a free 
ebook. It's a PDF that you can download from his website. And uh, his website also mentions that he's going to be releasing all of his other Apple titles as PDF downloads. And I think that that's very cool. Now, I assume these are books that you're familiar with from their printed form? Yes. Yep. What did you use them for? Uh, well, I used the uh, Apple Assembly Cookbook to try to teach myself, rather unsuccessfully, um, uh, Apple Assembly language. I certainly heard of Don Lancaster before, and I've never owned any of his books. Previously, The I've gotten some of his books from the library and enjoyed them, but it's pretty exciting that his Apple II works are available as PDFs. I think he also has some of his older non-Apple II works available as electronic books on his website, too. I thumbed through his Apple Assembly cookbook, and I think it could be a very good introduction to assembly language programming, programming in general, and certainly the Apple II. It looked like he did a better-than-average job of explaining how to program, how to use the tools. A lot of assembly language books that I've seen stop at, here's the instruction set, now go do something. But Don goes on beyond that and, and even gives an entire second volume of example code that you could use to start your own programs. Old or new, it's still cool in retro views. For Retro Views, where we talk about our favorite hardware and software from years gone by, we decided to let our guest of the month select the topic, and he chose edutainment software or educational software. Yes, I have fond memories of using an Apple II in a classroom as a student. Some of my favorite software includes titles like Logo, Number Munchers, Rocky Boots, and I'm sure all of us have our favorite titles, the things that we grew up with. I've heard a lot of people talk about number munchers, and when they ask, what do people do at an Apple II convention in Kansas City? Play number munchers? That was actually a comment on Slashdot once. <laughs> and to be honest, I've never actually seen or played this game. What is it about number munchers that has resonated in the memories of so many retro computing enthusiasts? I think the biggest thing is that a lot of Apple II users or retro computing enthusiasts have used this as part of their childhood, and they just have fond, nostalgic memories of it. Also, I think that Number Munchers is a simple, easy-to-learn game, neat graphics, interesting storyline, and it's, it's kind of addictive for being an educational game. What sort of a storyline does Number Munchers need? Well, not much of a storyline, and, and honestly, the game would probably be just as educational without it. But they have cut scenes, and they, they try to give the number muncher character a personality, and the the monsters in the game, I think they're called uh, troggles, are part of the storyline as well. It's not much, but it helps make the game more than just some boring thing that the teacher made you do. Could you see this game being resurrected and made into an Xbox Live download game for today's generation of gamers? I'm not sure about that. I think it would need a lot of special effects to appeal to current generation of gamers. It doesn't mean that the concept would not work. It, I know that there are several clones of number munchers available online right now. I think there's at least one JavaScript clone and one Flash-based clone. <coughs> so people still think about it and still try to play it. Kind of like Oregon Trail. What about you, Mike? Um, you know, my, my experience with educational software on the Apple II is actually kind of limited. I didn't, didn't really get into that too much, um, because screw learning, right? Um, so the one that I do remember is Apple Logo. And in fact, that was my, my first experience on an Apple II computer was with Logo software. So that one really sticks out in my head. Same here, Mike. Logo was my first experience with the Apple II. Yep. At my elementary school had a, uh, a little computer lab set up in the library. Basically, it was six Apple II. I think there were two pluses at that time um, that Apple had donated because they were trying to, to build their their educational market. And they donated it to us, to the school. And they our class was like 24 students, and there were only six computers. So basically, we would all take turns using it. And when we weren't using it, we were writing out by hand the logo uh, commands to draw whatever picture we were supposed to, to draw. I think I still actually have that listing around here somewhere. I'll have to dig that up. Yeah, with everything else that you're scanning nowadays, why not add some of your own stuff? Sure, why not? I still have my original logo disc from third grade. 
Yeah, my my dad bought uh, a copy of what was it the Terrapin logo system? It was like two hundred dollars or something ridiculous like that, and it's sitting in my closet next to me right now. Did either of you ever use three D logo from the Biteworks? I did not. No, nor I. Yeah, I won a free copy of it in a genie chat room when it came out, and I've never been that much of a programmer. I never really got into it, but there were, I think, a couple of cool things that were done with it. Unfortunately, it came out after the Apple II's heyday, but I think it really could have caught on. I really think that Logo is underappreciated. Most of us who have seen or used Logo think of it as a somewhat limited way of moving a triangle called the turtle around on the screen, but Logo is more complex and deeper than just moving a turtle around on the screen, turtle graphics. Underneath Logo, it's a complete programming language that can teach much more advanced concepts. There's a fellow in California who wrote a college-level computer science textbook around Logo. And there's also quite a bit of serious educational literature, academic literature, about using Logo in the classroom. And it was developed in, I want to say, the late 60s, specifically for teaching purposes. Yeah, and in fact, I believe that Logo is still being developed today for, for the modern Mac OS X and Windows platforms. Another program that you mentioned, Peter, was Rocky's Boots, which I never used as a kid. But in a previous life, I was a high school English teacher. And one day the computer science teacher came to my office and said, Ken, I have this old Apple II program that I found that was referenced in relation to the subject I'm teaching my students right now. I was wondering if you could run it on your computer for me and show it to me. And I'd never heard of it. It was Rocky's Boots, and I booted it up. And I took one look at it, and I said, this has to be the work of Warren Robinet. And she said, who? I said, you know, Warren Robinet, he's the creator of the first ever Easter egg. He created the game Adventure for the Atari 2600. This looks and plays just like it. And, you know, I immediately jumped on Wikipedia, and sure enough, it was his work. I really don't think you get that much anymore where you can tell who wrote a game just by looking at it because there are now so many people involved in the creation of any one piece of software that they're really not able to leave that personal stamp anymore. But I'd never played Rocky's Boots before that. Something I did play as a kid, and which I still love, is Microzine, which was sort of a disc of the month of edutainment software. It was put up by Scholastic. Our grade school had several different copies. Some came in clamshells. Some had a strange cardboard trapezoid that they came in. Others were just cardboard sleeves. And they had sort of a take on text adventure, where it would tell you a story and then give you multiple choice. So it was more like choose-your-own-adventure. They had this cool construction tool set where you were a construction builder building cities bit by bit and putting buildings and trees, almost like a two-dimensional SimCity. Uh, they had Escape from Antcatraz, where you're an ant trying to find a new home for your colony. And if anybody out there has copies of Microzine, I have a few myself, but I'd like more. And I'll pay 10 bucks per issue that I don't already have. So if you're looking to unload them, please contact me through the Open Apple podcast. Do either of you remember this monthly publication? I remember that Microzine was very heavily protected against copying. Yeah, that's true. I have tried to put the copies that I do have into disk images courtesy the FC5025 that you brought to KFest last year and was completely unsuccessful. I really do need to look through some old issues of computers to see if anybody cracked that. Do you know where I might find those issues, Mike? Uh, not off the top of my head, no. Liar. <laughs> Check out apple2scans.net. All of the computists have been scanned and posted there. Cool. Thanks. Yeah. And in fact, it's it's interesting how heavily a lot of that educational software was protected. I mean, Logo uh, was a pain to copy, and I remember that the MEC, the MECC titles, those were all very heavily protected as well. Do you th think that's because they suspected the multi-user environments that the software would be found in was ripe for piracy? I'm guessing that was part of the motivation, sure. You know, not only did you have students swapping software like that, but you know, a, a school would buy one copy and then make multiple copies so that it could run on every Apple IIe they had in whatever computer lab they had set up. I know that when I was working with the Apple II in its heyday, I didn't have any money to buy anything. So if I wanted software, I either had to find it at the library, 
back then the the public library had a selection of Apple II software that you could check out. Most of it was copy protected. Or I had to type it in by hand. I got a copy of uh, of Nibble or found a basic games book or something similar at the library and sat down and typed it in. It was painful to type it in, but that's the only way I could usually get new games. What's it worth to you? Hold on to your wallet as we look at the latest Apple pickings. It looks like we have several eBay auctions to talk about this month. Mike, what do you have for us? Some of these were just kind of fall into the, the category of this is a ridiculous auction. There's a 2GS Waz edition that has a $3,000 buy it now. You know, so if you were waiting to jump on, on that Waz edition 2GS that you just had to have, well, you might want to look elsewhere. Uh, there was a copy of Sammy Lightfoot that sold, <laughs> which is just an awful game, as Ivan pointed out. Uh, the last podcast, it sold for $208.05. On a more serious note, there was a, a, a copy of the Bob Bishop's Bomber on uh, Apple II tape, which I'm proud to say that I won at auction. So I'm looking forward to playing with that. It's not here yet. Do you actually have a cassette player to load this with? You know, I, I do. It's been sitting in the basement for a while, and I know that the uh, Apple II tape interface hasn't always been completely reliable, so it'll be interesting to see whether this even works or not. Is it true that audio tapes can effectively be converted into audio files and then back? I've seen talk about that on Compsys Apple II, I guess. I've seen that Antoine of Brutal Deluxe has come up with a method for converting those to, to WAV files. Now, I don't know what you would need to do to get the WAV files back to tape in the form that the Apple II could read them in, but it seems to be a way to back up those tapes. Because I remember the guys at Panic.com, which make the great Macintosh FTP program Transmit, they basically took their iPad running iTunes, plugged the audio out into the Apple II audio in, and they ran the audio version of a program, and it loaded into AppleSoft Basic. Interesting. Yeah. I found an Apple II game being sold on eBay called Make Your Own Murder Party. It was a game put out by Electronic Arts. And I unfortunately wasn't able to find much about this game on the internet, so I don't actually have any details other than the fact that it's a, going for a buy-it-now price of $19. I assume it's kind of like... Uh, there are some games nowadays. There's one indie game that I think is playable online, and then there's another game called Assassin's Creed Brotherhood where basically two players are pitted against each other, but you can't tell who's the player and who's the computer-controlled AI opponent, and you basically have to figure that out by trying to blend in. And I'm sure Make Your Own Murder Party isn't quite that sophisticated, but maybe it's like that, or maybe it's just more like the board game Clue. I don't know. Have either of you ever heard of this? I remember seeing it uh, advertised in the magazines and things, but I've never played it. I guess it caught my eye primarily just for the neat title it has, and I hope that isn't the best thing about it. <laughs> I came across several... Uh, auctions for Apple Adventure, um, and that's actually the, the Apple II version of Colossal Cave Adventure. One of the auctions is currently at about a dollar, and it looks like it's just the diskette. You don't even get the uh, the sleeve for it, but the guy says that it's been tested and working. There's another one that has a buy it now of $179.99. Uh, that actually does include the sleeve, So, uh, but if you want the most complete one that's on eBay right now. It's has a buy it now of $70 and includes the sleeve and the manual as well as, as the disc. I'd like to talk about a craft disc notcher for five and a quarter inch disc that's on eBay right now for only $58.99. I, I had this exact model. I actually still have this exact model of disc notcher. At the time it was it was incredible because I could suddenly double the number of discs that I had effectively without having to buy more discs. Is it worth fifty eight ninety nine? I don't know. What are your thoughts, Mike? Oh, I always just use the, the the handheld single hole punch, and I would just line it up with another disc. Um, and as I recall, you can get those for two or three dollars at Kmart. So maybe if someone can't quite afford the fifty eight ninety nine for the craft disc notcher, you could sell them a a hole punch for thirty or forty. <laughs> I'd be happy to. Yes. How well do you know your Apple soundtrack? See if you can name the game. 
time again for our monthly Name the Game contest, where we challenge you to identify an Apple II game just based on a short audio clip. Here is the clip that we played for our listeners last month. And that game was Conan, Hall of Volta, which was not originally a Conan game, but they just slapped that name on to get some brand recognition. It was specifically the third level with the lava and the ants, so congratulations to everybody who got it right. I was trying to get a slightly harder game for people to guess from our first episode, and I apparently succeeded because we had fewer submissions this time. And almost everybody got it right. However, the prize for this contest was a free two-day pass to the Vintage Computer Festival which is being held in New Jersey next month in May. Unfortunately, everybody who entered and got the right answer, except for one person, they said, if I win, please pass on my prize because I will not be able to go to VCF. In fact, we had people on completely different continents entering. Uh, Wade Clark said, my goal is to get every single one of these right, whether or not I win. (laughs) And he won last month, so it was very gracious of him to pass on that. And I do appreciate him wanting to listen to every episode. But the one person who did not outright state his ineligibility and got the right answer is Marvin Malkowski. Congratulations, Marvin. You've won a two-day pass to VCF almost by default. Yay. And speaking of VCF, we have another prize for Apple II listeners. Anybody who is going to VCF, all you need to do is speak to Evan Koblenz or one of the other organizers of the event. Tell them that the Open Apple podcast rocks and you will get a free VCF t-shirt. Very nice. But the Name the Game contest is a learning process for those of us here at Open Apple, and uh, we do definitely appreciate the free pass to VCF, and we hope Marvin can take advantage of it. But to ensure greater eligibility in the future, we will try to be avoiding geographic-specific prizes because we don't want to discriminate against our international listeners. Our prize for this month's contest is a $25 discount to Kansas Fest, which is being held in Kansas City, Missouri, as we've previously said. However, if you cannot make it to the event, you will get a free Kansas Fest t-shirt. If you are attending Kansas Fest anyway and you are getting the $25 discount that comes with bringing a first-timer with you, you cannot combine that with this discount. So you will instead get the free t-shirt delivered in person as opposed to being shipped, which it will be the case if you cannot attend. Registration prices for KFAS do go up May 31st, but the $25 discount can be applied before or after that. And here's the audio clip for this month's game. Do either of you know what that game is? I have no idea. I look forward to someone naming that game. Yep, I don't know either. Send your guesses to name the game at open-apple.net or go to our website, click contact, and fill out the form there. When we started Open Apple, we didn't intend for this segment to be anything other than the contest Name the Game, but I think all of us who come on the show are gamers at heart, and we just have a lot of Apple II gaming stuff that we're coming across and want to share. So we're going to be using this segment moving forward to s- spread out some of that news. Mike, what do you have for us this month? Uh, well, last month uh, we had mentioned that uh, Ultima 4 had been ported to Flash uh, that you could play in your browser. And it's kind of sad news to report that Electronic Arts is now using the, the DMCA to shut down the unauthorized free downloads of Ultima 4, and that included taking the Flash site and a couple of other popular Ultima websites offline. What a bummer. I mean, I I prefer... XU4, which is an open source version that I mentioned last month. I think that's still available, but it's still disappointing to see that this web-based version isn't available anymore. Yeah, I, I think XU4, uh, yeah, they're, they're still online. I believe XU4 required um, a copy of Ultima 4. Uh, you had to download, and they, they removed their links to that. Um, and I guess the, the rumor is that Electronic Arts is working on a new Ultima title, and that's sort of what's motivated this doesn't really make any sense to me. I would think that this sort of thing would be something that you could use to advertise, you know, the, the new title, but, you know, I don't work for EA, so. Well, there were some other old classics that just got poured to a new system, and those would be the King's Quest games. I guess this group, AGD Interactive, has been doing these ports for a while, and they just, this calendar year, came out with King's Quest 3, 
And I was shocked that they could publish these without facing similar litigation. But then you looked into a bit further, Mike, and figured out why that is. Yes, they're actually licensed to do that from whoever owns the rights to the titles now. AGD is a licensed nonprofit, and as long as they don't charge for these games, they can recreate uh, King's Quest, Quest for Glory. I think they were working on Space Quest for a while, but had to cancel that just due to resources. Yeah, I think it's very cool that that's available for anybody to, to download and play. I'm just surprised I didn't hear about it sooner. Yeah, it's, it's amazing the stuff that I find that I missed or you know I'll come across it and I think it's new and, oh, this happened 10 years ago. AGD is not the only licensee anymore for Sierra titles. Asarian is now licensed to host Sierra games, and they're working on iPad support so that you can play these games directly uh, from your iPad. Uh, they were up for a while, and they were forced to take them down, and it looks like they managed to negotiate something. And, and so currently, I don't think you can actually play them on the iPad yet, but uh, it looks like that's coming. Well, that's very good to hear. I understand that these software publishers, they do need to protect their copyright, and any time they don't, that sets a precedent. But I do approve of these efforts to come to some sort of compromise, because very often these copyright violations are being incurred by people who are just fans, and they love the games, and this is their way of paying homage to them. Yep. And it looks like I spoke too soon. Uh, as you were talking, I pulled up the iPad interface, and currently you can play The Black Cauldron, and Gold Rush on your iPad, and it looks like more titles are coming. So I'm very excited to see that. Gold Rush, that was for the Apple II, right? Yes, I think both of those titles were available on the Apple II. And does the version you're looking at look anything like the Apple II versions? Uh, it looks like they used the PC graphics, which I guess doesn't surprise me, um, just because they were better. Um, but I'm guessing that the gameplay isn't all that different. Well, instead of porting Apple II games to modern systems, there are a couple of games that Antoine of Brutal Deluxe wants to port to the Apple II. He recently got his hands on an aborted attempt at porting SimCity to the Apple II from 10 to 20 years ago, and he wants to finish the job. He contacted Electronic Arts, the copyright holder for this former Maxis game, and if I understood his email correctly, Maxis said that they want a certain percentage cut of at least... 10,000 euros worth of sales of this game in order for them to license it. Somebody commented in the, the Compsys Apple II thread on this that, that basically was lawyer speak for go away. Yeah, I, I would love to see SimCity on the Apple II. I don't know if it'll happen, but uh, if, if he does make it happen, I'll definitely buy a copy. Well, I know there's an open source version of SimCity called Micropolis, which I think is actually slightly different from SimCity. And since it's open source, and this has been discussed on CSA2 many times, why don't we port that? And Antoine's response was that the code itself is, it may be more complete, but it's also more complex and perhaps not even as elegant as the original SimCity code. And he, he would like to work with that. But when you do that, you encounter all the legal issues, which are probably more difficult to overcome than any programming obstacles you'd encounter with Micropolis. I wish him luck with that. And what about you, Peter? SimCity, Ultima, any other games you like? I don't have much to say on games. I've, I've enjoyed a lot of games on the Apple II, but most of my time on the Apple II has been spent trying to learn how to program it. Given the choice between a game and an hour with AppleSoft Basic, I generally chose the hour with AppleSoft Basic. And also, I, I mentioned that I didn't have access to a lot of these Apple II games, so most of the Apple II games I played were games that I could type in from a magazine or book. Probably a wise choice. It is somehow kind of re rewarding to spend several weeks typing in a game from hard copy and then finally having it work. I think the biggest game that I typed in was Formula Nibble, published in a Nibble magazine. It was a car racing game. I remember that game. I spent many hours typing it in. One of the downsides to, I think, many Apple II games that aren't role-playing games is that nowadays they would be considered casual gaming, and when you're done playing it, you don't really have a lot to show for it, which is the case with a game I've been playing lately on the Mac called Super Crate Box. I can play it for an hour, and when I'm done, you know, I turn the game off and I got nothing. Whereas if you're doing what Peter did, which is dedicating your time to actually learning something or producing something. When you're done, you can say, I've learned this, I have this, I wrote this or typed this. I now feel like I've wasted most of my life. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> well, I've done that too. Not many people are hiring for AppleSoft basic programmers these days. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Screw games. <laughs>
I, I recently came across uh, a handful of Apple II games that have been redone for, for Microsoft Windows. Uh, they included uh, Wavy Navy uh, and, and Frogger and probably most significantly Load Runner. These games require Microsoft Windows because they use the DirectX interface, but they're free. Now, I don't know what the, I guess, copyright status on them would be. But the great thing about Loadrunner, which uh, Spoonbill seems to have spent most of their time on, is that it's not just the original, what was it, 255 levels that came with the Apple II version. They've spent time and gone out and grabbed basically every level pack from every version of Loadrunner that's ever been released and shoved it into this, their, their Loadrunner remake. Uh, they did use, it looks like, the Apple II graphics from these games, but the sounds, I think, may have come from the Commodore versions. They're, they're definitely better quality than what you would have gotten on the Apple II. Um, so check those out. On the website for these games, at the bottom it says how to order. There's a section labeled that. And then it says allow four days for delivery. Is this a commercial entity? Well, uh, I think Spoonbill Software is actually one guy. Um, I can't remember his name off the top of my head. He's, he's, uh, he lives in Australia. And the way it works is you send him an email and tell him which titles you want, and then he replies with a link to his Dropbox account. And I guess the reason that they do that is because he has like a 10 megabyte limit on his web account, so he doesn't put them up to download because it would go over that, and they would, they would start charging him extra to host those files. So this guy, Ian Humphreys. That's him, yeah. He's releasing these as freeware, basically. Yes. Okay. Technically, I think that's still... I mean, I admire him for writing all this code from scratch to basically simulate the experience of playing these original games. I think that's technically still a copyright violation for look and feel. But at the same time, this is such a superior alternative, in my opinion, to piracy. Because, again, this guy is creating these out of his love for these games, and he's not charging anything for them. Right, yeah, I, I, I thought that was a really neat idea. And if you look at his bio page, you know, he's been, he started off programming uh, for the Apple II way back when. Um, he says he's, it says he's done a lot of uh, Apple II titles, although it doesn't list which ones he did. But uh, yeah, I kind of, I, I kind of really like the approach that he took here. And although this necessarily isn't about the Apple II, he also has a page on his site specifically for games that can be played by the visually impaired, which I think is a vastly overlooked segment of our audience. Uh, there, there is a whole session at the Penny Arcade Expo about how to make games more accessible, which can be anything as that simple as allowing you to remap the controls or adding subtitles or allowing a colorblind mode where you don't have to be able to tell things apart by color. You can use shapes. Apparently, this guy is very sensitive to those needs, and I think that's very cool. Yeah, absolutely. But as opposed to all these unlicensed remakes we've talked about, there are two licensed remakes or sequels coming out. Unfortunately, they're not for the Apple II. They're for the PlayStation Network, which is downloadable directly to your PlayStation 3, and possibly other platforms like the PC, but nothing I own. And those would be uh, Wizardry and Choplifter. Wizardry, of course, is the classic hard-as-nails, first-person perspective role-playing game that ran for many, many years. Unfortunately, has not been seen in North America for almost a decade has been popular in Japan throughout the course of its life and beyond. One of those Japanese sequels is making the leap to North America. And the other game is Choplifter by Dan Gorlin. And we were just talking about him a couple months ago with his coin-op version of his game. And that too is coming. And it looks like it has uh, much enhanced graphics, of course, from the Apple II. The desert is no longer purple, unfortunately. But the game does still exist primarily in two dimensions, which I was glad to see, because if you take that game three-dimensional, in my opinion, it would just lose any sense of its roots. Yeah, I was a, a big fan of Choplifter. Um, while Peter was busy learning AppleSoft Basic, I was saving hostages. I'm looking forward to seeing this. Well, it sounds like we have plenty of games to keep us busy until the next open Apple. I think so. Before then, Peter, you have a conference to attend here in Boston, so I think I shall see you back on your way so that you're not late for your own presentation. Thank you, Ken. I, I've had a lot of fun here with both you and, and Mike, and it's been a pleasure. I, I look forward to seeing you again at Kansas Fest a couple of months. That was definitely nice to talk to you, Peter. Yeah, thank you for taking time out of your trip to Boston to stop by the Open Apple Studio, and uh, we look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you. Well, Ken, uh, it's been nice talking to you again as well, and I will see you in a month. You will? We'll talk to you in a month. Oh, yeah. See you then. This has been the Open Apple Podcast. 
Find more episodes, read our newsletter, or send feedback by visiting us on the web at www.open-apple.net. Did you want to ask me anything about the Kansas Fest logo? No. Okay. Why? What about it? No, I, I didn't know if you wanted to make any further comments about it. Or I think you've you plugged your work quite enough, Peter.